Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books in Biblical Studies, where I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies, which is the orbit of my old PhD. I'm very excited to be talking today with Joshua Schachterly about his revised dissertation on Egyptian monasticism and the intentions of one of its foundational figures to reproduce the hallowed traditions of the Desert Fathers who come from the Christian East to the Christian West. And we'll get to all that in a moment, but first, let me introduce my guest. Uh, Joshua Schachterly earned his PhD from the University of Denver and Islip School of Theology in 2019, which he uh, undertook after a long career as a punk rock musician and equally long and somewhat overlapping career as a high school English teacher. So a very interesting background. His uh, research focuses on the origins of Christian monasticism and how early monastic texts contributed to the formation and development of Eastern and Western Christianity in the late antique period. He uh, currently writes articles on the New Testament and early Christianity with subjects ranging from the Didache to John the Baptist for Bart Ehrman's website and earlychristiantext.com. And he has a forthcoming article in Cistercian Studies Quarterly on monastic uses of scripture, which I'm looking forward to. On top of all this, uh, Joshua is joining me live today in studio in the palatial Denver Public Library Studios to discuss the publication of his first monograph, uh, John Cassian and the Creation of Monastic Subjectivity with Equinox Books. And Josh, I, I recognize that you uh, resisted the uh, desire to have a subtitle there as well. But it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so as a matter for our audience of full disclosure, uh, Josh and I basically navigated our PhD program at the uh, University of Denver together, and we were writing partners while we both worked on our dissertation. So this is far from the first time that I've interacted with uh, uh, Josh's work on John Cassian and monasticism. If you were to go to the great lengths of reading both his book and my book, you'll find that we both uh, cite one another as being kind of generally therapeutic in the difficult dissertating process, but also in specific instances as well, academically. 
but uh, of course, in these podcast episodes, we uh, provide a soft review and encourage conversation with authors about their work. So uh, although this is a, a hard critique of Josh's work, I do happen to think that he makes important contributions to uh, interpreting the intentions of John Cassian specifically and also early monasticism in general. So what do you say, Josh? Should we uh, get to it? Let's get to it. Wonderful. So in this book, you make an argument about uh, John Cassian's intentions for monasticism as he moves from Egypt to Western Europe with a couple of other stops in between. Uh, and so he lands in Gaul, which is uh, southern uh, France today. Um, and we'll get to Cassian the individual in short order, but I wanted to start our conversation in an even more basic place uh, uh, here today. Um, what do we know about the origins of monasticism, either from Cassian or from other ancient sources? Um, are these uh, initiated, these monastic orders, are they initiated as official church orders of monks like our listeners might know about existing in the church today? Uh, where and why, uh, I realize I'm throwing a lot of questions at you, but, but let me get to it. Uh, where and why does this conglomeration of Christian practices achieve popularity in early Christianity? And what perhaps are the different types or flavors of monastics and key individuals associated with them in the rise of early monasticism? I'd like to start by thanking you for giving me some of these questions in advance so I can not have to remember them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so speaking of monastic origins, um, there's sort of a traditional account, even in the ancient world, even in the late antique period, of where monasticism came from and how it grew. And for centuries, it was always starting in Egypt with a hermit called Antony. Um, and also sort of parallel to that, it was another Egyptian um, named Pacomius who started off as a hermit like Antony, but instead of remaining a hermit, became sort of the founder of uh, larger monasteries. So it's not that those two figures weren't real or that they didn't contribute mightily to the origins of monasticism, but like most things in history, you can't take ancient texts at face value. So um, there was surely no definable point of origin like Antony or Pacomius, even in the uh, fairly spurious uh, Life of Antony written by Athanasius, he he acknowledges that Antony went out into the desert and learned from other monks that were already there. So um, having said that, I will say that we're, we become aware of monks as monks in the late 3rd and early 4th century in the deserts of Egypt, um, which became kind of the center of monasticism, although um, I should acknowledge that we know now that it was also developing at the same time in Palestine. Mm. Um, so these groups of Christians and some, again, they're often in, in some of the literature they're they're often characterized as, you know, illiterate peasants who are just simple people that love the Lord. And the truth is there were those, but there were also very educated people and everything in between. So there was a huge diversity. Um, these people moved out to the deserts beyond the Nile Valley and the literature written about them fascinated people in the ancient world. Um, in other words, these monks and, and nuns, and I, for the rest of this podcast, I will just be referring to monks, not because there were no female monastics, but because they were all called monks early on. There was no female equivalent. Like a distinction. Nuns. So the, the distinction between genders came later. Exactly. Okay. Um, so these monks and nuns were not, um, to answer your question, were not official orders initiated by bishops. And we have plenty of evidence that at least early on, some bishops didn't quite know what to do with them. Um, you know, what was their role in the church? These were considered holy people and lay people, mostly because of their asceticism, which we'll talk about later. 
Um, and lay people greatly respected them, went to them for advice, um, for mediation in, in conflicts. I mean, they were clearly important, but generally they weren't ordained and they weren't exactly lay people either. So my, this is where I get to use the Twitter thing, a secret third thing. They were, they were a separate category that had yet to be defined officially by the church. And so I think in some ways the church was uncomfortable with them early on. And you can see evidence of that. Um, so then you asked, how did monasticism become so popular? Well, the literature written about them spread. Um, the life of Anthony that I mentioned earlier was probably the first big one, and it became like a ancient world bestseller. Um, in fact, if you read Augustine's Confessions, just before his conversion experience, he's discussing with friends the life of Anthony, which I, I think he hadn't read, but they had, his friends had read. So, I mean, it had gone that far away from Egypt. Um, so it was, yeah, it was everywhere. And that, of course, means that it became, that life of Anthony became sort of the ideal that people aspired to. Oh, well, monks have to be like this. What that didn't take into account, of course, was that like every writer, Athanasius who wrote that had rhetorical purposes in mind. He was not just writing that as a disinterested historian or something. Um, he used Anthony, in his case, as an authority to fight Arianism. Um, so in the, in the story, Anthony is this vicious heresy fighter, right? He goes to Alexandria and he rails against all of them and screams for the authorities to arrest him for it. And, but we actually have letters written by Anthony, which aren't anything like this. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's when I say that Athanasius story, uh, book is, is spurious. I think that's what I mean. Like we, we, he doesn't seem to fit the actual evidence we have of Anthony, but the point of it, the point of this is that he was such a popular figure even before Athanasius wrote this or Athanasius wouldn't have claimed him as an authority. Um, so then to talk about types of monasticism from, from early on, the very first that we know of would be called Eremitic, which is, you know, from Eremos, the Greek word for desert, because they were solitary. And that's the word for which we now have the word hermit. Exactly. So Anthony being a hermit, a desert hermit, a bit redundant. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> But so he would, um, Anthony, Anthony and others like him lived in caves. Um, some lived in ancient tombs that had been disused. Uh, some built cells for themselves out of mud and lived in those. So, but they were known to be solitary and mostly, at least early on, avoided. I mean, they were out in the desert away from human society for a reason. They thought that solitude was got them closer to God. Second type, um, was were called lauras or sometimes pronounced lavras depending on how you spell it um those were smaller groups of monks who lived separately like individually isolated during the week but then came together for a, a synaxis like a you know a weekly worship session uh on sunday or to speak with the leader and get advice mm -hmm. so there was usually a leader and then you know let's say eight to ten monks at most living in close proximity but avoiding each other most of the week and then finally, the one that we're most familiar with today that continues today, which is monasteries, which were large groups of monks living together all the time. So it sounds like there are perhaps many different beginnings to monasticism that become normalized into kind of an official story through Athanasius and through the way that uh, these things tend to get remembered after a, a significant period of time. That's exactly right. Um, so if... If these early monastics are kind of abandoning the urban church setting in Egypt, whether to um, live by themselves in a cell or a cave or what have you, or in a Cenobitic community, 
or in some other kind of arrangement. Is it fair to say that monasticism is inherently an anti or counter institutional endeavor? Or is that a stretch of the evidence for you? I would say that it didn't begin with the intention of being a counter church movement. However, the fact that the church was such a huge part of the social fabric fabric of the ancient world, of especially the late antique period, um, monks by moving outside of that system physically, um, and then also by creating their own sort of system of authority based not on apostolic succession as, as bishops were, but on something else, on asceticism, sort of created their own system of authority, um, not apparently literally attacking clergy or the church, but just existing separately from it and garnering their own authority, both from lay people and from each other. And so um, this is evident, um, for example, in, in stories of Cassian, but also in other monastic uh, literature, the saints of the Desert Fathers, the Apophagmas of Patrum, um, where monks try to avoid being ordained, which is often sort of forced upon them. And the reason they try to avoid it is because it disrupts their ascetic lifestyles. Um, and we'll talk more specifically about this later, but some even go to extremes like mutilating themselves to avoid ordination. Um, the Saints of the Desert Fathers seems to advocate for an independent system of influence and organization particular to ascetics. And so um, it's parallel to, as I said, but definitely separate from religious communities presided over by bishops. So there are many stories in which not only do monks avoid being ordained, but they also kind of um, disregard the authority of a bishop. So for, for one thing, bishops come out, don't bishops don't wait around for the monks to visit them. They visit monks, which shows a, a sort of deference already, uh, especially the, you know, living as far out in the desert as they were, that took some doing to get out there and risk your life. Sure, sure. And then in addition, um, despite the high status of the bishop, uh, they would show great deference to these monks by, you know, bowing down at their feet. Um, now, again, some of this literature was written by monks, so we have to take it with a grain of salt. A certain portrayal of events. Right? Absolutely. But the fact, again, going back to Athanasius, the fact that he thought that it would be helpful for his position to co-opt the sort of rhetorical power of a well-known monk shows that bishops were wary of the power of these monks and, and aware of it. That's very nice. Um, so I have a sort of related question that is about the sources for early monasticism. You said some of them are produced by monastic communities themselves, uh, uh, whether by individual monks or Sedevitic communities, uh, but they're also written about in church histories, which are kind of more traditionally uh, institutional, we, uh, we might say, and hagiographies and other kinds of genres and treatises. Um, you make a, 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 a wide use of this kind of material from you know, Sozomen, Socrates, institutional figures, and also the um, monastics themselves. But it seems kind of like a delicate balance between those that are internal to monasticism and those that are perhaps external to it and have only uh, uh, experienced it um, by observation rather than their participation. So uh, setting aside Cassian's work, who I promise our listeners will get to eventually, <laughs> setting his works aside for the moment, are you able to generalize for us about how the internal monastic literature might compare to the external institutional literature, maybe by uh, appeal to any uh, divergent aims and goals that it might have? And, you know, is that a fair way from, from the beginning to characterize a dichotomy between the two? No, I think it is. Um, so, again, leaving Cassian aside, 
literature produced and compiled by monks, and that includes the Sayings of the Desert Fathers, but also others, including the Lozyak History and and many many others. Um, collection these collections of sayings, etc. They most see, d- despite some of the diversity between them, they m- they focus most on asceticism as authority. So asceticism has to be um, correctly done, which is to say not not too extreme. Um, you know, there's a story of a monk in the Saints hanging himself over a cliff um, and, you know, basically risking dying as a form of asceticism. And he is grabbed by other monks that said, told, don't do that. <laughs> but obviously monks... Cassian himself writes about the Gallican monks when he arrives there being overindulgent and lazy and not, you know, not renouncing their privilege and status. That is also looked down upon and that loses them authority as monks. So the main focus is asceticism. And even the clergy that are mentioned in monastic literature, there there are several clergy people um, focused on in some of the monastic literature like the saints. They're only there because they are sufficiently ascetic. The Life of Anthony, going back to that, as a good example of something written by an outsider to monasticism, about monasticism. Um, the fact that he even wanted, as I said before, to co-opt Anthony's reputation or his own position shows that Anthony already had this exalted reputation. Um, and I think that's how you often see these. You can look at the rhetorical purposes behind outside literature and say, oh, well, here he is. The, the author was clearly trying to uh, force the monks or a monk into a specific sort of role such that he served the church. I mean, in Athanasius, for example, Anthony is extremely different to to bishops. He, you know, make sure you bow down. He tells his disciples to all bishops when you see them, and they are the only respect, you know, the only representative of the holy church that matters. And there's no evidence that that actually happened in monastic literature. It's all, it's all literally the opposite. Okay, so Athanasius paints a very convenient portrait for uh, bishops yes. uh, as they would come to interact with uh, monastics. Absolutely. Perhaps. And he's only really one example of that. I mean, there, there are many. Okay, very good. So uh, you told us a little bit about monasticism as an option for Christian practice in the 3rd and 4th century and perhaps beyond that as well. But um, now I'm curious, that if we get to the subject of your book, how that fits into all of this. So uh, my questions here are pretty basic. Who is John Cassian? Uh, what do we know about his biography, his life, his career, and his writings? And uh, why is he an important figure to study in the annals of Christian history? Yeah. So Cassian, unlike, you know, fortunately, like most ancient Christian authors, is kind of stingy with the details of his biography. But I think there's enough evidence in his writings that we can fill in some of the place. And in some other people's writings about him, to tell you the truth. Um, he was born around 360 CE in a region called Scythia Minor, which is now part of a, uh, a region called Dobrugia and is shared by Romania and Bulgaria. Uh, we know that his first language was Latin, and it's very clear from the Latin that he uses that he's educated. He's not just sort of cobbling this together. Um, but he was clearly also educated in Greek as well, and he uses fair, a fair amount of Greek terms in his writing. Some scholars have noted also that his writing shows the influence of Cicero, which is an interesting sort of indication of his education. Classical background, almost. Absolutely. You know, he, he references several times in his own uh, conferences things like uh, the Aeneid and um, Ovid and, you know, et cetera. So he's he's clearly aware of that stuff and grew up, probably grew up learning that stuff. When he was about 20, he left his 
home and he went to Bethlehem to join a monastery. Uh, he mentions that his friend Germanus, who would play a big role in his life, was at the monastery too, but we don't know if he met Germanus there or if Germanus came from his hometown. I always sort of romanticize it in my head as if the two young boys leaving on the... <laughs> but who knows? He became dissatisfied after a few years, uh, about three years, with the practice at this monastery, uh, saying that they, on the one hand, weren't ascetic enough. They weren't strict enough on, in their asceticism. And on the other hand, they weren't hospitable enough to strangers, which is an important value for monks. And of course, he's writing about this much later, much after later. after he's experienced a, a different environment in Egypt. Absolutely, absolutely. That's interesting. Yes, and he's clearly retrojecting his his future values onto this. Yes, a little bit. Although, again, I often wonder how much he had read about Egyptian monks before he even got to this monastery. Like what even prompted his movie to to the Holy Land to you know join a monastery? So that's that's always a possibility. Um, so at the same time that he was becoming dissatisfied in Germanus as well, an older monk who had come from Egypt joined the monastery and started telling stories to Cassian and Germanus about the monks of Egypt. And of course, like the saints, there's a lot of miracles and, you know, stories of power and things like that. And so they get very excited by this. And, uh, Germanus and Cassian finally determined that they're, they've got to leave and go to Egypt and meet these famous monks. And so they get permission from their abbot because obedience is a huge value in, in monasticism, as you know. And the abbot says, okay, because this is a worthy goal to meet these monks, um, you can go, but you have to come back. <laughs> they never come back. Um, there's even some sort of indications in the conferences where Germanus says something like, we really should go back, but I kind of don't want to. Interesting. So, you know, they were young men. There we go. So they go to Egypt. And according to the conferences, anyway, they, they do. They walk around several regions of Egypt. They meet many famous monks, and they learn a lot. And then eventually, rather than returning, they settle down in a uh, laura, a small group of monks, uh, that is known as uh, basically the settlement of a group called the Tall Brothers, who are actually actual real brothers who are apparently tall. And... Um, was probably led by uh, a famous theologian, Evagrius Ponticus, um, who, strange, not strangely, Cassia doesn't mention him by name in his writings, but Ca Evagrius' ideas are all over. Him. Yeah. Um, and so in that little group, uh, Germanus and Cassian stay for about 15 years. So it's a decent amount of time. Wow. And, you know, for Cassian, at least in his memories, writing later on, this is an ideal, ideal time. Uh, an idyllic time. I mean, he's he's found the hero monks that he wanted to learn from and understand, and now he's getting to actually live with them and learn their practices, and it, it's exactly what he wants. So, of course, it can't last. Mm -hmm. um, the Bishop of Alexandria at the time, uh, whose name was Theophilus, uh, seems to have started up a controversy. Again, we're going by ancient documents, which we cannot take at face value. But the uh, church history written by Socrates says that the bishop decided that, I'm, I'm summarizing a little here, sure. but he's, he decided that it was important to uh, emphasize that God was embodied, that God actually has a body. And Cassian and his group of monks, Evagrius included, said, did not agree with this. Hmm. But what's interesting is you also don't see them fighting. They're not debating. They're not going out there trying to convince anybody. They're just sort of, this is what we believe. This is where 
out in our group, out in the desert alone. This is what we believe. And certainly they weren't the only ones. But um, there were plenty of monks, clearly, that did also believe that God was embodied. So, I mean, it could have been sort of a non-issue. Right. Almost one of the many minor theological differences that appear all throughout early Christianity. 100%. Um, and if not contested, if not emphasized, if not focused on, it might have gone nowhere. So we have John Cassine and the Tall Brothers and their little Laura, as you say, and, and they think that God is not embodied. He's not uh, um, to be anthropomorphized, as, as it were. Um, how does that lead to their um, ejection from Egypt? Right. So according to Socrates, um, the bishop Theophilus wants to sort of exert a kind of control over all the monks of Egypt. And so he, and again, this could, if true, this could go back to what I was saying before about bishops not knowing what to do with monks. Like we can't bring them under our purview and we're sort of, we sort of owe them deference because the lay people give them deference. And so like, how do we control these people? How do we bring them under our, under our purview? And assuming that that is the way he was thinking, which is possible, he basically draws the line and says, you have to believe that God is embodied. Which always works. Uh, that's a great strategy for never fails. Yeah, right. And so rather than wait for their, even wait for a response from them, he sends groups of monks that agree with him, this he being Theophilus, out to their, to the Tall Brothers settlements and burns it to the ground. And basically they are forced to flee. So at this point, Cassian is losing his ideal. Um, he and Germanus, along with the Tall Brothers, Ivagrius actually had died just before this happened. Um, he died in 399, and this happened in about 400. So they flee, and the place they flee to is Constantinople. And presumably the reason for that is that there is a, a bishop. The bishop there at the time is John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that they see the monks see authority as based on asceticism. Well, John Chrysostom is a very ascetic bishop. Even as a bishop, it's clear that he lived a very ascetic life and that was important to him. Um, and so they basically run to him for protection and he gives it to them. He even um, ordains them, but they don't run for this ordination because it's like a way to protect them. It's a way to say, you can't hurt them because they're under my purview. Well, unfortunately, soon after that, Chrysostom is attacked. Um, not physically, but um, and there's some, against. In the in uh, in the church history I was talking about, uh, Socrates says that Chrysostom was partly attacked by the same bishop of Alexandria. Um, he was also attacked by the emperor and his wife uh, for saying things like, "Those of you who are wealthy and not giving your wealth to the poor are robbing them or, or thieves." Hmm. Not popular with wealthy emperors not or empresses. Not, not usually. Yeah. So, um, Chrysostom becomes rather beleaguered. He he he. He is exiled once, then he's allowed to return, but he doesn't stop what he's doing. So he's exiled again, and this time it's permanent. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have anything about this from Cassian, but uh, Socrates and Sozomen actually in, in their church histories write about how uh, certain monks named Cassian and Germanus were sent to Rome to advocate for, uh, for Chrysostom and try to get his job back, basically. Unfortunately, so they, they were, again, we don't know if they chose to or if they were sent, but I think they would have been happy to do so either way. So unfortunately, on their journey to Rome, um, John Chrysostom dies in exile. So it becomes kind of a moot point. But 
when they get to Rome, we don't have any official evidence or writings about what happens in Rome. But the next time we see Cassian, just a few years later, he is in Gaul, um, where he ends his life. And so he could either have been sent there by the Bishop of Rome, or he could have been summoned there by the Rome, the, uh, excuse me, the Bishop of Apta Julia, which was a region in, in uh, Gaul, who, at whose behest, uh, or at whose request, Cassian ends up writing his manuals. So either way, he, he winds up there and ends up writing those two monastic manuals, the Institutes and the, and the Conferences, for these two monasteries that are there. And very soon after that, he dies. So that's a basic biography of him. Um, to answer your question, why is he important in Christian history? He is, as far as we know, the first recorded attempt to bring the traditions of Egyptian monasticism to the West. Um, it's not that they weren't aware of it. I mentioned that Augustine was very aware of the life of Anthony, for example. But I don't know that anyone had come out there and tried to literally say, do this, officially do these things, because that's what they do in Egypt, and that's the correct way to practice Cassian is clearly uh, dismayed by the practices he sees in Gaul and by the lack of pronunciation that he sees. The fact that um, monks actually have a, like a high social status there and almost gain in status by becoming monks. Hmm. So for Cassian, this is just anathema. It's how can you possibly live like this? These, you're not real monks. Right. So um, yeah, it's, it's clear that the bishop there also was thinking this way and therefore wanted ca the benefit of Cassian's experience. So uh, after Cassian moves to Gaul, he um, is uh, commissioned. He also probably wants to write these two manuals as the, as you say, the institutes and the conferences, which are um, basically how we know John Cassian's ideas today. Right. Do you want to say a little bit about the difference between the these two uh, manuals and um, um, uh, do you have a favorite between them? Well, that's a good question. The institutes are much more practical. If he had just left the institutes, you would have a kind of a strict manual of how to be a monk. They talk about the clothing they wear. They talk about the number of prayers they're supposed to do. The you know how much sleep or how little sleep they're supposed to get. How to fast. All these kinds of practical issues. And then this, that's the first half. And then the second half of the institutes is dealing with what we talk about as the, the seven deadly sins. Although he talks about eight. Uh, something he gets, by the way, from Evagrius Ponticus. Um, but even that is practical because each of them deals with, okay, when this, and, and he thinks of those vices, or as he calls them, uh, as demons. And so he thinks, he says, look, I have learned how to fight these demons. When this is, assaults you, and it will, this is what you do. Okay. These are the kind of prayers you use. These are, I mean, it's very practical. Now, when you get to the conferences, he writes them as conversations between himself and Germanus, mostly Germanus does the talk, and uh, these really well-known, famous, respected monks. Um, it's unlikely that he remembers these conversations verbatim. I mean, it's this is a, at least 20 years later, and he even notes that in, in the introduction. However, the big ideas he, he might actually remember, and he puts them into conversation. So that's that to, that's to say it's less practical and more abstract, more theological. So we have uh, two writings, one which it has sort of the shape of a, uh, a rule uh, as becomes popular in later monasticism or an order, uh, and one that kind of has the shape of dialogues between himself and Germanus and the famous monks. Correct. So that's an interesting way to uh, conceptualize of these two writings for people who haven't uh, d dove into them before. 
No. Um, just as we're interesting our audience about all the historical stuff, I want to hit the pause button and ask uh, a question uh, of you personally, because I'm always interested to learn the whys behind a, a, a scholar's research and why you settle on a certain thing. From what I know about you going back nearly a decade now, you've been interested in monasticism for some time. This has been kind of where your head's at for a while. So uh, how did this, we might say, an alternative Christian tradition initially come to your attention? And why are the desert fathers and mothers, that would include John Cassian, of course, even if he aims for some distance between them and kind of honoring those who came before him? Why are these why are these people so interesting for you personally? Yeah, it's a great question. And my interest preceded my understanding of my interest. Uh, I got really into this long before I even started a PhD. Um, Thomas Merton wrote something called The Wisdom of the Desert, where he wrote his own translations of some of the stories. And they're charming. I mean, they, if you read the sayings of the Desert Fathers, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of stuff that you would not find in other Christian sources at the time. And um, it charmed me. And so that's one factor. Um, the other thing is I grew up in a very strict evangelical home. And I think because this is what my church and my family wanted me to believe, I believe that was the only way to be a Christian. But of course, you and I know that if you study even going back to the earliest origins of Christianity, it, there were so many forms right from the beginning. And so I found this a fascinating alternative to regular Christian practice or lay Christian practice or even clerical Christian practice going on at the time and thought, well, this was a totally different way of thinking. Um, and so that fascinated me. I, I mean, by the same token, for the same reason, I'm interested, for example, in early Jewish Christianity and, and thinkers like uh, Annette Yoshiko Reed and people who really focus on that stuff. And I'm interested in the Didache, as you mentioned. So any sort of alternative to this, the mainstream story of Jesus died and then Archer started, I, I'm, I'm interested. In. Maybe the Shepherd of Hermes, too? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, well, one more thing I want to say oh, is I've always been fascinated by asceticism in general. And before this PhD in this book and all this, I was interested in how that manifested in Indian religions. Um, so for example, Jainism, I don't know how familiar you are with them, but they're extremely ascetic, but their, their purpose in doing that is non-harm. Um, that's their whole focus is not harming anybody, not creating bad karma for themselves. Sure. And so that's so different from the way it's thought of, for example, by Egyptian monastics who are thinking of it more as sort of a self-emptying process. And I thought it's interesting they could have some of the same practices, but be doing it with such different intent. And yeah, so in general, asceticism, I think, is a very rich topic. And we'll talk uh, quite a bit about asceticism in the foregoing, but uh, I could totally see how um, this alternative tradition, uh, knowing your background, uh, uh, was that, was that interesting to you? And you've um, uh, shown the fruits of the labors of uh, pursuing this type of study. So let's get to the book, um, the basic uh, thesis and the arguments therein. Um, so you claim that John Cassian in his written works, as we talked about earlier, the Institutes and the Conferences, uh, these uh, volumes that transmit a certain program and mindset for monastic uh, practice, asceticism as it were, uh, they envision a separation uh, between the institutional church under the leadership of the bishop and the monastery under you know, their own leadership. You say that Cassian, for example, draws from different sources of authority than the Orthodox writers of the church, who are, in many cases, bishops themselves. 
and that both Cassian and his uh, group or cohort of monastics were often quite skeptical of figures from the ordained ranks of the ecclesiastical order. Um, can you talk us through what you call a closed discursive system of monastic discourse, as evident in Cassian's writings, and what you observed in the institutes and conferences, for example, that indicates he was working toward an ideal of independence from the institutional church? Yeah, so I, as I was mentioning, I came across the sayings of the Desert Fathers years before I became a, a PhD student. But even then, I was aware of early theologians like Irenaeus, Tertullian, um, Origen, and when I was reading these Desert Fathers who came after all of those writers, so all those early writers, Clement of Alexandria, for example, I was surprised by the fact that they were never mentioned. And I kept thinking, why would that be? Like those people were very well known, cited by other Christian authors. Like why would they not be mentioned here? All they refer to is monks. So that's what I mean when I say a closed discursive system. And I think it, it's, it basically shows that for them, the only authority over a monk could be a monk. The only proper authority, I should say. Now, this isn't to say, again, that they're trying to tear down the church. They're not like, you know, Che Guevara's of the Egyptian desert or something. They're not trying to affect a coup. That would be something. Yes, wouldn't it? They're just trying to say, we should have a parallel system of authority over here that is not intruded upon by clerics the way that Theophilus um, uh, intruded upon out of its all brothers and, and so um, the only, in fact, I was thinking about it with that question. The only reference I could find in any monastic literature that I, that I was aware of um, to an earlier Christian writer was one tiny reference in the Lozyak history, which mentions a monk who had memorized the Old and New Testaments and many lines of origin. Hmm. So this obviously is an endorsement of origins theology, and yet it doesn't say anything specifically we got this idea from him. Sure. They clearly did get a lot of ideas from him. Or from, uh, you know, what of Origen's copious writings they're you know, memorizing no. from. Because you know, commentary on a biblical book could be, you know, first principle of homilies. I mean, it, it, there's so many to go from. Sure. Um, but all it says is they, he memorized a lot of Origen. So we actually don't know. So that just shows you how obscure it is, how, how, how unusual it is to ever find an earlier Christian writer cited that he's in a monastic. Um, so by the time I started this book, I was sort of sufficiently curious about this omission and reading Cassian helped me to discover a possible answer to why this, why he might want that, because I think he's advocating for a parallel system of authority. Um, I spoke before of how a Bishop of Alexandria forced Cassian and others to, to flee their settlement, uh, ostensibly over their theological notions. After this, Cassian went to another Bishop and Christian writer who he also doesn't cite, um, Chrysostom. And I had to wonder if, you know, first being kicked out of the Egyptian desert and then having to, like, watching this bishop that he admired so much be exiled and eventually die um, due to this due to his maltreatment, I have to wonder if he thought maybe the power of bishops is, can, can be dangerous and maybe there needs to be a way that we separate ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's an assumption, but I think it's a well-founded assumption. Um, in reading Cassian's Institutes and Conferences, I saw first that Cassian seemed to believe that what mattered for a monk was not theology, and I think that makes sense going back to if he looks if he's looking at Theophilus, you know, insisting that we're going to burn you to the ground because you don't believe the right thing. I think he might say that's not what monks are about, which is why they didn't fight back. 
um, they instead said, yeah, we do believe this, but what matters is what we do is our practices. And so the institutes, as I mentioned, start out by saying, okay, this is how a monk should dress. This is how many prayers they should say. This is how many Psalms, all matters of practice. Um, and furthermore, he actually insists that the practices are all divinely sanctioned. So they'll say an angel gave us this number of prayers. Um, you know, hard to argue with a messenger of the Lord, pretty high authority. It is. So again, if you're receiving direct messages from the Lord <laughs> on what to do, that must be the right thing to do. Sure. And it gives you a, a, at least equal authority, I would say, to a bishop. So the second part of the institutes, as I said, deals with the seven deadly sins, but he, or eight in his case, but he doesn't just identify them. He gives them practices. And so I started to see it's all forecasting about practice. And then what I, with that lens, if I go back and read the saints of the Desert Fathers of the Lozeac history, I can see a, a similar orientation. What really matters is how you practice. And this is very different, as you know, from, you know, fourth century erisiology and that sort of thing about, but are you believing the right propositions? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and if not we're burning to the ground or you know and even if you have the right propositions in one decade it doesn't that doesn't mean that uh, uh when your work is reevaluated 60 70 years later that you're going to be declared a heretic speaking of origin right exactly and like you know exactly so uh cassian also claims just as another way to sort of you know solidify his authority that the traditions of mux go straight back to the apostles now who else's authority goes back to the apostles the bishops. The bishops. Right. So he's, to me, this is like a shot across the bow. He's saying, we are just as authoritative as you um, because look, look at the apostles in Acts. They live, they, none of them owns anything. They, they share everything in common. They, it's very easy for him to put that back onto monks and say, look, we're, this is what we're doing. We took this from them and not yay, centuries later, we read this and decided to do it, but that it's been passed down over time. And if you're not aware of those monks in the ancient times who were doing it, you just aren't aware of them, but they're there. Um, so that is basically when you helped me with the neologism, which um, instead of apostolic succession, you said you suggested having read the, that part of my writing, apostolic praxis, which makes a lot of sense to me, which I use in the book. Thank you. And there's still an idea of succession behind it. Absolutely, succession of, of, of practices that are undertaken or followed exactly that connect one to the apostles rather than simply tracing a genealogical line back through all of the, you know, Episcopal successors. And they don't try to even do that. They don't say, well, I was a student of Evagoras, who was a student of that, who was a student. They don't care about the names as much as they care about, are you doing the practices that they did? Right. And we know their practices from the stories we have and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know if you were planning on getting to this eventually or not, but there's a pretty 
funny quote from Cassian that uh, appears several times in your book. I, you know, I, I hadn't thought to mention it, but it's super important. And it's yeah. actually the thing that got me even writing this dissertation in the first place on this topic. And it was, and he, what's interesting is he doesn't claim this as his own. He says, this is what the monks in Egypt all say. He says, a monk must always flee for women and bishops. Now, flee from women for an ancient Christian, and especially a monk. So, okay, you get that. That makes sense. Okay. Women are, you know, temptations, etc. Of course, he doesn't say that women monks should flee from women, but that's another story. But to flee from bishops, you're like, wait, what? Aren't they your authority? But in this case, I mean, I think there's two sides to that. On the one hand, you don't, you want to flee from them because you don't want to be one of them. You don't want to be ordained because that diminishes your ascetic life and makes it harder, if not impossible, to continue. And that's what matters. Um, on the other hand, flee them because they will try to force you into um, the role of a cleric or in the worst case scenario, like the obelisk, they will literally hurt you or, you know, try to rope you into their heresiology or their theological ideas that you don't want to be roped into because you have a, an ascetic program of practice that you are focused on in your little monastic uh, uh, conclave, perhaps. Yes. Um, let's see. So uh, we've talked about the um, experience of John Cassian with the Tall Brothers and uh, uh, his eviction from Egypt a couple of times already, but uh, you use this as the introduction of your book, and I thought it was really a compelling introduction because it goes into sort of this one specific controversy, one of the many in church history, about whether or not God has a body, uh, whether God is corporeal or incorporeal, as we might say. Um, it feels like the kind of a question that a Sunday school uh, student might ask in that sort of setting. And in fact, I might have asked a pastor that kind of question myself at one point. Me too. But um, as with many questions that are seemingly kind of benign and just kind of wanting to know more and uh, what does scripture say about this, right? Uh, it becomes elevated as the controversy du jour. And uh, politicking takes place between the bishops with uh, heavy ramifications heresiologically uh, and kicks off the originist controversy, right? That ended for Cassian with his exile to Constantinople first and his eventual uh, move uh, to the West. So you say that influential and contemplative monks like John Cassian and the better educated circles of monks that he swam around with uh, had opinions about such matters, but um, uh, you also say that what mattered more to them uh, was a certain set of monastic practices advocated in his writings, and uh, thus they were animated more by praxis than theology. Um, it's compelling for me precisely because for most believers throughout history, and I think uh, the constant battles with heresy and the calling of councils and the developments of creeds that are you know angled against certain people uh, exemplifies uh, this, that Christianity is predominantly or even normatively for the institutional church, a set of beliefs rather than practices. What exactly does Cassian advocate for, uh, for his apostolic praxis, we might say, in the institutes and the conferences? Does he weigh in on any of the theological controversies of the day or, you know, the, her the classic heretics, the heresiarchs, as it were? Uh, and can you give a few examples of the ascetic behaviors he associates with true Egyptian monasticism and true Christianity, and how these behaviors are seemingly related to uh, origin and the vagaries and the other people who he borrows from um, to uh, uh, to paint a picture of apostolic Yeah. So, I mean, the fact that Cassian doesn't write a lot about theology in terms of controversies or heresies, I should say, um, doesn't mean that he wasn't a man of his time. Um, those were everywhere. There was no escaping from 
the knowledge that those controversies were going on. Hmm. Um, he was a monk in Egypt in the late fourth century, and therefore he had to be aware of those, and including you know Christological controversies. Um, he writes something later about against Nestorianism, for example. Um, however, and actually, he even wrote a book. I was going to mention he, he wrote a book against basically defending himself from charges of Pelagianism, um, which were made by Prosper of Aquitaine, right. the follower of Augustine, um, saying, and Augustine had, hadn't said something against Cassian, but against Egyptian monks in general, he had sort of made a similar charge, which was they think that by they can control God's grace or they can invoke it by their efforts at asceticism. And that, that little incident or controversy, as it were, pops up in my book as well, uh, because yes. uh, Cassian ropes in um, a piece from the Shepherd of Hermas, and it's a sixth mandate about how each person is attended by a uh, angel of righteousness and an angel of wickedness. So, uh, yes, Cassian does reflect the uh, controversies of his day. I absolutely believe that. Absolutely. And while he writes that book I, I, about you know, defending himself against Pelagianism, um, and, and he basically takes sort of a middle position, by the way, um, saying, I think asceticism is uh, an effort are necessary on our parts, but they'll never be sufficient. Grace has to be there as well. So um, it's, it's definitely a halfway position between what we think we know of Pelagius and what Augustine argues against. Um, but I don't think he would have written that had he not been accused. Um, it, and it's definitely his worst book. If you're going to start with Cassie, don't start with that book. Okay. That's called On the Incarnation of Christ. And uh, yeah, it's it's not, for me, it, it, it has, has very little interest other than that it was written by him. Okay. But um, having said this, this is one of the things that interests me most about monasticism, because as you say, in that time, to be a Christian meant which propositions do you ass- assent to? You assent to these ones? Okay, then you're one of us. Do you not assent to those ones, or do you assent to different ones? Well, then you're one of them. And it was constant infighting, and you know, it was all over the place, as we know, um, from Nicaea on. Although even before that, right, Irenaeus spends quite a bit of time on heresies. I mean, Irenaeus' book is uh, on heresies. Yes, how it's virtually uh, uh, against the heresies. So, I mean, you know, this was not a new thing, but it was even more ramped up, I would say, after Nicaea made it seem like those that was the official Christian position. Those were. So, um, What's, what I find interesting about that is that in monastic literature, for example, in the Saints of the Desert Fathers, um, there seems to be a general ethos discouraging that kind of controversial debating or arguing. Um, as an example, um, and again, want to make sure everyone knows I'm, I'm not taking these texts at face value. Um, these are idealizations done for rhetorical purposes. However, there's a great story um, or quote from from the Saints where a monk gives a younger monk advice you know the, the monk the monks often go to elder monks and say give me a word tell me how to live and the monk gives some basic stuff you know don't eat too much control your tongue etc then he says don't argue about the image and what he was referring to is the controversy of what it means that humans are made in the divine image does it and this goes back to god being embodied or not does that mean that god looks like us and the, so he created us to with bodies that look like his body or does he mean that there's this sort of internal spark more like origins kind of idea and this guy doesn't say, take a side, this particular monk. He says, just don't argue about it. And there are many, many stories like that where they say, don't argue with people. Don't do it. Just skirt past the theological controversy and do your practice and you know, do what you're supposed to do. So I found that fascinating. And even in the case of the controversy that resulted in Cassius' exile, when the way that it's written in the church history of Socrates, as I say, there's no fighting back from those monks. They don't say, no, you're wrong. They just happen to believe that, and they and people know it because they've gone out and talked to them, including the bishop. And the bishop decides, no, you can't do that there, or we're going to 
kick you out. But there doesn't ever seem to be any debate between the two. So, I mean, for I, I think for that reason, there was that that sort of ethos was already established by the time Cassian got to Egypt. And I think in general, while you cannot at all say there were no theological controversies among Manassas, of course there were. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't seem to be the focus of those who wrote and compiled the literature, including Cassian. Um, the, what mattered was, are you practicing correctly? Um, and practicing correctly, as, as you asked, um, for Cassian, it means a lot of things. It means, for example, things like how much one should fast. Although, for example, he, he does say, I've tried many different rules of fasting, and there is not one that works for every person because people have different levels of health and strength. So, you know, it has to be, it has to sort of be a trial error. Um, how many prayers to say, which he gives an exact number, uh, and at what times, and when should I observe silence, and when should I, when can I speak? And all these things include practices that he thinks of as emptying the self of this worldly self, and instead allowing that self to be filled with divinity. So, um, a, a word that doesn't he doesn't use, and that isn't used much at that time, or maybe just, I'm not aware of it, but that it's used later in Orthodox theology uh, in the Middle Ages is theosis. So becoming divine, and that's what that is. That, that's the point of asceticism for them, is this sort of union with God as opposed to sort of just being near to God, which is more of a Western sort of... Uh, I think Athanasius also sees theosis as not that a goal worth ascending toward. I would agree. He's probably had different ideas on quite how to get there. So I would agree with that. Um, the other thing to say about, I guess, if you, had to, if you had to narrow Cassian's idea of asceticism down to one word, it would be renunciation. Okay. Um, and he uses that word again and again, especially in the conferences. Um, so, as I say in the in my book, the monks of Gaul were generally in the upper classes, and they they you know they they go to the monastery. So there were even stories that I found uh, researching that of monks in Gaul who would spend the week days at the monastery and then go home to their mansions and party on the weekends. Like it's like I don't know, like a Fred guy form of monasticism or something. It was very interesting. And of course, this was horrifying. Was right. Like, You're not a real monk. Get out of here. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, for, for a monk, the way that Cassian thinks of a monk, you take everything away from that monk that connects him to his worldly life or, or her. So when you first come in, they, they take your clothing, they take all your possessions. They don't throw them away or even use the money. They keep them separate. And if the person ends up leaving, they give it back to them. But um, they do even the robe that they get doesn't really belong to them. It belongs to the monastery. Hmm. So nothing is you're, you're, you own nothing is the ideal. And that means that in a sense, you become nothing. Um, ownership. I talk, I refer to another book in my book, uh, Agamben's book on poverty and monasticism. And the fact that monks later on, especially in the middle ages, make a difference between ownership and use. And they're allowed, monks are allowed the use of many things, of the robe, food they eat, utensils or tools they use for manual work, but they don't own those things. And I think that's important because they don't define them. They're only defined by their practices. It's like a communal, pra- a communal uh, ethos of you can't take it with you. That's all exactly the rest. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good um, and um, so asceticism has its benefits, uh, um, as it's described in the literature. So, uh, but this is not the way that you portray it. This is the way that I took it as I was reading. Um, but they seem uh, kind of like magic. That they, they have magic-sounding powers in episodes that you uh, survey. So, for example, uh, one of them basically commands a crocodile to die so that the other people can cross a river for a church service, and the crocodile dies after the uh, 
after allowing the moat to uh, surf across his back across the river. Um, ascetic monks are also able to perform as healers. Um, and whether we call that magic or something else, uh, uh, the, what empowers that is the monastic's expertise in asceticism. So uh, it seems that asceticism is the basic currency in monastic thought, and it's as well reflected in Cassian's own writings, as well as the uh, Apophagmata, I hope I said that right, the sayings of the Desert Fathers. Um, you suggest that asceticism arises as the most laudable form of Christianity around the time when martyrdom is no longer taking place because Christians are, of course, now the powers that be, and even though they're maybe attacking one another, there's not uh, martyrdoms as we think about them happening in uh, when the Romans are in charge, for example. Uh, um, these ascetic practices can border on the extreme in their own right. You talk about monks who subsist on basically morsels of bread and water a day, uh, but they contrast especially with the portrait of Western monasticism in Gaul, where Cassian is looking to import or evangelize his Egyptian um, monastic program. Um, I think you say also that Augustine uh, figures like Augustine are impressed by what these uneducated desert dwellers are doing based on his reading of the life of Antony. Um, where I'm going with all this is I'm, I'm curious if you can elaborate on the differences in practices between what happens in the Eastern mon monasteries that Cassian grows up in, or he's raised in perhaps, and those that he arrives at uh, in Gaul. Um, what is the communal life like? What do they do with their time in different places? And how does Cassian try to reform the West to look more like the East? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned earlier, Christian monasticism developing in Egypt and Palestine first was really an Eastern phenomenon. And of course, that even goes back to writers like Basil the Great, um, who were monastics that then became bishops, but you know, we're very focused on asceticism and the Cappadocian fathers in general. Um, so that sort whole sort of uh, ascetic ethos, um, I think was a was part and parcel of the theology and practice of monks in Egypt as well. And they, the, the Egyptian monks that in that sense uh, influenced the Cappadocian fathers and vice versa. But um, we have indications from Augustine, but also from Gallican hagiographies, you know, um, people in Gaul writing of monk saints in Gaul. Um, the monasticism in the West was conceived of very differently with reference to asceticism. So in the East, as I said, the Cappadocian fathers, Chrysostom, they emphasized the need for self-denial. And I remember reading something of Chrysostom's where he's, you know, he's, he's giving a homily to lay people in his, one of his, in his church. And he's saying, go out and see what those monks do, do the same. He's telling lay people to do what monks are doing. It's, it's it's ridiculously audacious to say that, and I hesitate to think that any of them would do it. But he, he seemed to think that that was it was that important. Asceticism was that important that everybody should be practicing. So this is kind of uh, Cassian's thinking as well. Um, I, but although I should I should mention that again, nobody that I'm aware of ever came up with universal rules like you know everybody should fast this much or everybody should do this number of prayers. Um, the general indication though, was that by refusing for the East was that by refusing to fulfill one's desires and specifically one's sort of worldly desires, things like sex and food and entertainment and uh, money um, and reducing one's needs down to the bare necessities for existence, one could sort of transform oneself and orient oneself away from the survival of the body and status and toward the spiritual. Now, in the hagiographies written in Gaul, 
especially of uh, Honoratus and Martin of Tours, you see a very, very different kind of thinking. Um, they are clearly seen as just as morally good, but they regularly interact with kings, spend time feasting with kings and, and noblemen. They, and uh, Martin of Tours, in particular, gets basically an emperor's funeral when he when he dies. They have a huge procession. People come from all over. Now, again, this is a hagiography, so take it with a grain of salt. Slide. The fact that that would even be seen as a good thing to do. Um, I remember reading one of the stories of the Desert Fathers of um, a monk named Arsenius, who ironically came originally from Rome, but then moved to Egypt to be a monk. Um, he's dying, and his two disciples say to him, what should we do? We've never like buried a body. And he says, first of all, do not dare let anybody honor my body. Like, no relics, none of that stuff. And they said, well, so what do we do? We've never buried a body before. And he goes, how about you just attach a rope to my ankles and drag me to the desert? Drag me out into the mountains so they can eat me. Animals can eat me. Very different from having kings and bishops and everybody following in a procession honoring you. So, um, yeah, and that would have baffled Cassio. That, the whole idea that monks should be high in high status and even high wealth. So um, I mentioned before, there are so many stories in the in the Desert Fathers and, and in Cassian of bishops who come out to visit monks, you know, risking their lives really to go out into the desert because they need advice from a monk and they want to honor this monk. Um, sometimes the monks don't even want them there. Uh, the same monk Arsenius, who I like to call the, uh, the grumpy monk, he, he is reeling into solitude. He doesn't want to have anybody around ever. And when a monk comes out, uh, excuse me, a bishop comes out to visit him. He says to the bishop, if I tell you what to do, do you promise you'll do it? And he says, of course. And he says, whenever you hear where I am, don't go there. I love that story. Like he can, he can say that to a, to a bishop yeah. and not get in trouble. And the bishop apparently just stands up and says, yes, sir. And walks away. So there's, there's a power there. And that power has nothing to do with the bishop. Whereas in, again, in the West, the bishop, the bishopric, and the and monasteries are definitely more closely tied at the time the Cassian is there in the fifth century. Um, in terms of Augustine specifically, we know that the Pelagian controversy for him, he he kind of railed against Egyptian monasticism, even though he was into it originally, um, for saying that what what he thought was um, a, a bold assertion that our efforts invoke God's grace, or in other words almost saying that we control God with our efforts. And he said, for him, grace was so ineffable. You literally could not even determine to whom it would go or why. So you just kind of had to hope that God's grace would be with you. And um, so for him, asceticism was sort of exclusionary for Augustine. It was sort of, you know, it's God should, God's grace should be available to everybody equally. And so to say that these super monks who are out there in the desert, not eating for weeks, um, are the only ones who get God's grace doesn't, isn't fair. doesn't make sense. It isn't how God operates. So that's sort of Augustine's view. In other words, being super ascetic isn't important. Mm -hmm. What's important is knowing God's grace and asking for it. Although again, God's grace seems to be kind of capricious and who knows if you'll get it or not. But for Cassian and for, you know, the classical monks from uh, Egypt, asceticism is kind of the highest of the highest uh, order, highest value. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the formation of monks in the kind of Egyptian model, perhaps. 
Um, thinking about what we know about the late arrival of monasticism in the third century, monks are still eager, as we said, to write their history going back to apostolic times, characters like Elijah and John the Baptist as prefiguring monasticism and especially for Cenobitic communities, thinking back to Acts 2 and 4, where believers are said to have pooled resources and shared meals and so on. Um, the institutional church wants to show its connection to the apostles via this top-down chain of su succession, apostolic succession from Jesus to apostles to bishops. And you suggest the logic of apostolic praxis is it active in monastic thought or monastic communities. So I want to ask this functional question about um, how these um, monks... Uh, connect back to apostolic times via their practices and how they form monks for a specific way of operating, a subjectivity, as it were, right? Um, how do these monastic communities take an individual uh, who expresses an interest in joining them? And you mentioned they, obviously, they give them to close. That's one. But how do they take them and turn them into an initiate in their apostolic self-emptying practices in this community? What does initiation look like if you were to uh, show up on the door of one of these uh, Cenobitic communities in Egypt one day and uh, tell them you want to join. Yeah. So Cassian, I always wonder how I, you know, how much these are idealized and not, but what Cassian says is that when someone wants to join a monastery, so let's say they go up to the gates or the door of a monastery and they knock, they are ignored and kept waiting outside for at least 10 days, if not longer, as a way to test their, their perseverance, how, how strong is their desire to be a monk. Um, and in addition to that, other monks will come by and insult them, maybe kick them. Like, just basically, can you put up with horrible treatments and, and you know, not getting what you need? Basically, can you be a real ascetic? And this is your first test. Mm -hmm. And I have to assume that a lot of them went no and left. And they noped out. And they noped out. Yeah. Um, however, if you get in, this is when, this is only the very first phase. When you first get in, you get to be you get to be what would be called, I guess, an initiate or a novice, but you're not officially part of the monastery yet. You have to prove yourself still. So that ceremony where they what comes next is the ceremony. They don't just give you new clothes and say go change. They literally in front of the entire monastery strip you down, take all your possessions. So that's you know the humility they're always going for that I was talking about, and put on the new robe, which makes them, you know, no longer do they own anything. They're, they're participating in the life of the monastery instead, but they're not officially in the monastery. What happens at that point is they're given to what would be called now, I think the hospitaler who is a person that lives outside, just outside the monastery. And he's, he's in charge of taking in strangers who, um, be hospitality or travelers, for example. And this guy, the, the young novice he is basically his assistant and is is forced to serve these people. Um, how, no matter what sort of socioeconomic status, status he came from originally, he's now a servant. And you have to do that for a year. After a year, you get to you get assigned to the person who will be your monastic elder or your teacher. And so Cassian talks about how the main job of that elder is to get you to conquer your desires. Well, how does he do that? The main thing is he makes them do things that are either repulsive or ridiculous and to see if the monk will obey even if it doesn't make any sense and there's lots of stories of monks obeying ridiculous things like a elder monk pointing an antelope and saying look at that turtle and the <laughs> the his student going yes yes sir that's a turtle um or you know writing something and in the middle of writing it he gets a call you know he hears a call from his elder he stops even writing the letter he's writing and immediately goes things like that 
the, the best story for me, it, it, Cassian tells it, and it's also in the uh, Saints of the Desert Fathers, is a young monk is told, so uh, his elder picks up a dry stick and sticks it in the ground and says, you need to um, water this every day until it blows. It's never going to blow. It's there in the desert. And the other problem is the water is, I think they say it's about six miles away across the desert. So every single day he needs to walk 12 miles to get water and bring it back. And he does it without complaining for a year. And then the, 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 uh, in the sayings, it becomes miraculous. The thing actually blooms, <laughs> but in Cassian, the guy, and so the guy pulls up the stick and throws it away. Okay. You've proven that you're obedient. So these kinds of things get the monk to do things that against his own desires, which are is supposed to teach him to be obedient no matter what, which is supposed to conquer his own will. And it's not like to trick the initiate, right? It's not it's not like saying uh, go find a board stretcher to the novice or the apprentice that comes into a carpentry shop, right? No. But you're trying to see can they functional about it. Can they obey the leniest ideas? Yes. With absolute um obedience. I mean give up your own will, right? Said over and over and over again. And that is seen as a way to allow the divine will to work through you. So there's a theoretical piece uh, kind of hanging out there that uh, you get to in the middle of your book. And you're, so you can analyze Cassian's institutes and conferences uh, by bringing in the contributions of a 20th century French theorist and philosopher Michel Foucault uh, as a way to conceptualize the rhetorical work that Cassian performs when he imports this Egyptian monasticism sorry, into a new context. Uh, Foucault is most famous for the ways he described his, in his writings and his lecture series how power establishes itself, operates, reifies itself, and so on, uh, especially through the formation of subjects, uh, and that uh, you know appears in your title, of course, uh, that are useful to a system of power. And you admit that Foucault's ideas are most germane to sort of the industrial age and the centuries immediately predating that, but uh, you also appeal to these Foucaultian concepts of disciplinary power, pastoral power, biopower, and overall, uh, governmentality to explain how uh, John Cassian institutes a group subjectivity or basically a self-sustaining monastic culture that is distinct from the institutional church and driven to particular ends that are, you know, that internalized by the monks that make up that community. And you explain these concepts sort of at a basic level for peoples whose head might spin at Foucault, <laughs> uh, for one, and um, provide a few key examples of how you see them as operative in Cassian's writings. Yeah, so... The writings of Michel Foucault, uh, specifically his theory of the creation of subjects, uh, really helped me to conceptualize and analyze the function of Cassian's writings. Um, a close reading of Cassian's writings through the lens of Foucault uh, showed me that Cassian was uh, doing, trying to do two things, trying to shape the individual subjectivity of monks, and I'll talk about what that means in a second, and next trying in turn to form a larger unified collective monastic subjectivity which might ultimately rival the authority of the clergy hmm. so when we talk about the, the the word subjectivity for Foucault this means a, a social construction whose vantage point is the result of the constant interplay of multiple forms of power that's probably as clear as mud <laughs> in other words the subject is one who combines and internalizes multiple forms of power in her her own her own social role so, for example, when I say Cassian is trying to shape the subjectivity of monks, I mean that he is attempting to give them an ideal based on Egyptian monasticism and make them see themselves as aspirants toward that ideal. In other words, you are monks in, in as much as you participate in these things that I tell you to do. Um, 
Foucault identified three means or methods by which subjects are created. And I think this is these three are what kind of like took me aback and made me think, oh, this seems like what Cassim is doing. So first, uh, modes of investigation create subjects as objects of knowledge. And Cassian does this by observing the monks of Gaul and comparing their practices, not in his head, but in his writing or his audience to the idealized monks of Egypt. So in other words, he's looking at them and saying, I'm watching you and I'm seeing that you do this, but the Egyptian monks do this. So he's basically trying to make them decide, am I going to be a monk? Then I have to do what he says. He's setting them up to say a true monk does this. Um, second, Practices and procedures divide subjects both from within and for other subjects according to standards of norm and deviance. So monks are divided within by Cassian's rhetoric in the sense that he tells them to watch over themselves as if one part of each monk is a guard and the other a prisoner <laughs> who must be made to conform. I mean, this also goes along with Neoplatonic thought, right? Where there's different parts of the soul um, and the, the, the higher soul should shape the lower soul and this same sort of ancient thinking, I think, that was sort of just in the air. And hearing that especially, it, uh, it totally rings a bell out for Cassie and the idea that a person is attended by an angel of righteousness who kind of tells them what to do, exactly. like how, how important that would be for his, uh, um, for his mindset. Absolutely. No, 100%. Yeah. Um, so that's how monks are kind of divided within themselves by Cassian's rhetoric. Um, they're distinguished from other subjects, so that would be lay people or any non-monk, really, so clergy as well. Um, or even monks who practice incorrectly. So basically, this is a way to say, true monks are this. You must separate yourself from those monks who don't do that. And I'm sure, I have to think there were a lot of monks in Gaul who were pretty comfortable and were like, we're not going to go there. Why, why does he want to change? We're, our lives are awesome. Um, third, practices and procedures of self-management are introduced by which subjects transform themselves as subjects to meet an externally imposed ideal. So Cassian's list of proper monastic behaviors includes a strict daily routine, excuse me, control of appetites, both elementary and sexual, and frequent confession of one's most shameful thoughts to one's spiritual master. In other words, and this is the, this is the very definition of governmentality, the conduct of conduct, in a way to shape their conduct by making them shape it themselves, mm -hmm. self-management. Um, so these practices or technologies of the self in Foucaultian, Foucaultian parlance then intersect with Cassian's rhetorical techniques of domination to create a unique form of monastic subjectivity. So that's what I see is happening in, in his rhetoric. Uh, Foucault also outlines, as you said, several types of power that operate in this process of forming subjects. So the first that you mentioned and that, and that he mentions is disciplinary power. Disciplinary power as opposed to sovereign power. Sovereign power is I'm going to beat you to death if you don't do what I say. Um, disciplinary power is achieved mostly through surveillance. So he, Foucault discusses in one of his uh, books, the prison known as the Panopticon, which I don't believe was ever actually built, but conceived of by Jeremy Bentham, sure. in which there's a watchtower in the center with cells in a circle around it facing it. The person in the watchtower or people can see all the cells and all the people in them, but the people in the cells can't see the person in the watchtower. So then they are forced to assume that someone is watching them all the time. And they, as a result, they end up policing themselves. So um, the idea, this idea, I think, gets translated in Cassian's writings in the sense that a true monk must reveal all of his thoughts and actions to his elder. If you don't, the elder will find out anyway. Um, there's a certain sense in which monks are 
most conceive of their minds as transparent to those who are superior to them. And so why wouldn't one police one's own thoughts and actions as much as one could in order to basically take part in the benefits of what it means to be a monk, spiritual benefits, conceptual benefits, etc. Um, another form of power Foucault mentions, as you said, is pastoral power. Um, and this modality of power is tied to the notion of a ruler and or deity as a shepherd, you know, Lord is my shepherd, for example, who must control his charges, but is also responsible for their safety and well-being. Um, and this is certainly what the abbot is responsible for, and certainly what Cassian sets himself up as. So Cassian himself plays the ultimate pastoral role in these writings, trying to shape the most thoughts of behavior while being concerned for their salvation or their spiritual well-being. However, he also notes that the elders in a monastery have this role and must execute it constantly. This is not the sort of, you can go to sleep and let them do what they want and then eventually talk to them about it. You must be on constant vigilance. Um, the other thing about pastoral power is it's it's not a privilege, as in being a king, it's rather a duty. I suppose a king could take it as a duty, but generally it's a privilege. So in this case, it is, it is an obligation. And then finally, Foucault talks about a form he calls biopower. And now biopower at first didn't seem applicable to, applicable to me because it's a lot about um, what he says is the techniques for achieving the subjugation of bodies and the control of populations. And he talks specifically about the, the initiation of demography. So checking, you know, how many people are there, how many children are they having, how many resources do they need as a way to sort of control the population. We know this. However, um, I do think there's a way in which you could draw a parallel where the monastery demands total control of the host bodies by controlling their time. In a monastery, there a bell rings and you show up for this prayer. Then that's done and you go do your manual work. Then you, so everything is controlled to the minute all the time. And this is certainly what Cassian writes about. Uh, Foucault would call this taking charge of life. This is a quote. Uh, more than the threat of death, which gave power its access to the body. So by controlling monk's time, the abbot of the monastery ultimately controls their bodies. Uh, so these forms of power overlap in certain ways, because like the abbot or the elder has a surveillance role, and they're also, I have a, a pastoral role, and so on and so forth. Um, it's interesting uh, looking at that through a Foucaultian lens, but I'm also interested how you uh, came about to use Foucault in this process and when you develop your dissertation. So, for example, you note at several points in his scholarship, Foucault himself appeals to John Cassian as sort of a thought partner, I suppose, who exemplifies his theories, but Foucault is also, uh, in some quarters, an eminently invoked philosopher to uh, to use in, in uh, you know, even early Christian works like this. So how did these two subjects, so to speak, Cassian and Foucault, uh, end up married else yeah it's a good question uh and my own wife wanted to know that she was like, how did you bring those two together so the, the the short answer is um obviously our program was mostly faced uh focused on biblical studies and early christianity however i would happen to take a course in the philosophy department um that include that was about um post-structuralism and foucault is one of the many people that exemplifies that so we did a big focus on foucault and one of the things we read was uh him talking about his theories of power vis-a-vis the creation of subjects. And at that time, I had just started really getting into reading Cassian's work, and it started to think, he's trying to shape these people. He's trying to make them into the person or people that he thinks they should be. That is a creation of subjects. That makes a lot of sense to me. And 
this led actually to an independent study uh, in the philosophy department with on Foucault, which um, allowed me to just, you know, really dive deep into Foucault's work. And I started to see his theories as operational, not just in Foucault, but most of monastic literature, a lot of power dynamics, obviously. And so they helped me understand, you know, the implicit and explicit exercises of power within monastic settings. So by the time I got to the dissertation, I knew that his theories were going to be helpful for me. Um, they also, to be fair, made it a much longer and more difficult process, <laughs> but that. I think they were helpful. I believe that. Uh, so, uh, somewhat of a heavy accident, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, in your fourth chapter, and I think it also spills into your fifth chapter, you unfold your reasoning for imagining Cassian's uh, monastic program as one that is ideally separate from the institutional church. So, you talk, for example, of the open defiance of bishops and clergy in the monastic literature, uh, amongst the good extremes to be, avoid being recruited into uh, the institutional clergy for whatever reason, uh, various probably. And finally, you discuss how the events of Cassian's career exposed him to sort of the politicking, the theological disagreements, and all the things that he didn't want to deal with, the weaponization of exile, and uh, all the things that would disrupt someone from living, you know, the upper ascetic Christian life. Can you share a little bit of this evidence with us and the reasoning behind, I guess, their desire to avoid both clerical appointments and political squabbling, and also why you see these as indicative of wider Egyptian trends? So this is not just something that Cassie himself believed, but this is kind of a, a wider belief among uh, the Christian uh, monastic tradition that uh, uh, Cassian inherits from Egypt. Yeah. So you say, for example, that Cassian was representative of a type of monastic thought and that while monks were not monolithic, even back then, they trended toward a place of sort of removed from the messy urban life of the church. So can you talk us through all that? Yeah, absolutely. So before reading Cassian extensively, I had already noticed that the apothegments of the saints seem to idealize a sort of independent system of influence and organization based only on ascetic virtue. I mean, I was thrown a little bit at first when I saw how many clerics and even a few lay people were focused on in the Apophagmata. But then when you look at it, it's because they're really ascetic. So that's the, the common value, the common traditional um, focus of, of everything in, in that writing and in much of monastic literature. So the rival claims of bishops and monks still provided reasons for competition. Many lay people saw monks as holier and therefore worthier advocates with the divine um, than clergy. So if, for example, as Socrates writes, Bishop Theophilus didn't really care about the, theolo the theological controversy, but was just exercising power over the monks, um, this means that Cassian experienced the dangers of ecclesial power firsthand. And he saw the same thing, I think, with Chrysostom's exile. So um, I argue that these experiences combined with his career as a monk in Egypt made him want an independent monastic authority, not subject to the whims of clergy. And as we know, I mean, some clergy, I think, were quite thoughtful in, in their practice and in their um, way of life and in what they preached. And some just sort of had whims. And if they wanted to exercise power for some reason or gain wealth, they could do that. So um, Cassian, I think, probably didn't want to be subject to that anymore. So in terms of competition between clergy and monks, there are many stories in Cassian and other sources of bishops, as you mentioned, forcing ordination of monks, like literally sending henchmen out to the desert, grabbing these people and carrying them back. And um, will be part of the clergy. And of course, many of them run away um, or hide or do other things. Uh, this was likely to attempt to co-opt their power and status of lay people. 
as I mentioned at the beginning, I think at this point, the, the role of monks was not clear in the church. And so the, the church, the institutional church and its representatives were not sure what to do with them. And yet they couldn't deny their popularity um, with the lay people and, and their power. So um, why would monks want to avoid ordination? I think for two reasons. Um, the first is that ordination afforded one such high status and wealth, actually, that they figured you could not maintain the humility you're supposed to maintain as an ideal monk, as a, as a bishop. Now, maybe there, there seem to be some who are said to have maintained it anyway, but surely it would have been more difficult than if you lived in a, in a mud hut in the desert. Um, and then second, you know, since asceticism was the basis for their authority, if you are suddenly a wealthy bishop and in charge of many, many people, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to maintain that ascetic regimen, which they thought of as virtue. So, I mean, I, I think that was the main reason that they wanted to avoid ordination. They, they, in a sense, thought that, I wouldn't say, it's too strong to say they thought of bishops as the enemy, but they thought of them as a separate form of authority sure. that they didn't want to partake in. Sure. Um, and, I, you know, I mentioned that the most extreme one is where the, the monk is being forced to be ordained and he cuts off part of his ear right in front of the henchman. And the henchman and, and says, I'm doing this because in Le in Leviticus, it says that someone who is uh, mutilated can't be in the priesthood. So these henchmen go, yikes. So they run back to the bishop and the bishop says, I don't care if he cut his nose off, go back, ordain him anyway. So they go back and they say, the bishop said to ordain you anyway. And he says, and he takes the same knife with which he cut off his ear. And he says, if you make me become a clergyman, I will cut out my tongue. And at that point, they give up. But that is extreme, right? I mean, like that, that, that one really struck me as like, my God, this guy was, would rather like die than become a, than become a, a bishop or a priest. And, and it just seemed like shocking. So, um, I guess while that's an extreme example, there are so many examples in there of, of monks running away from it that it started to seem like it had to be a trend, right? So, um, as you said, the monks, monks in Egypt were not monolithic. They were clearly different factions and different beliefs and different practices. Um, but Cassian was definitely part of what later came to be called originists. Um, they, even though Evagrius, I don't think ever mentions origin. I don't think Cassian definitely doesn't mess, mention origin. And for good reason, at that point, origin was being sort of questioned and would ultimately be anathematized. But at this point, it's just that his ideas are part and parcel of their practice. I mean, the way they interpret scripture, their, um, commitment to asceticism their whole idea of sort of rising with prayer, ascension to, you know, union with God. I mean, that sounds like origin mixed a little bit with Neoplatonism. So, I mean, in that strain, um, in that, excuse me, in that, in, in that strain of, uh, of monasticism, some sources are distinctly originist. Cassian, obviously, Evagrius, obviously, the Lozaic history are very, is very originist. But then the apophagmate actually kind of denigrates origin. At one point, saying that uh, having a, a monk that is, you know, folk, that is one of the main foci, focuses of the of the piece, um, actually like yell at someone for listening to the ideas of origin. So there was clearly not a monolithic idea of we all do this and we all believe this. Sure. Um, there were also many different reasons for becoming a monk. This one surprised me. You don't see this in much of the monastic literature because they're idealizing. But in letters and things like that, we know that, for example, um, sometimes older people that had no support from family needed a place to stay in food. Sure, they would join a monastery. Sure. Um, sometimes 
single women who had infants, same reason. They would join and their and their babies would be allowed to stay. So I mean there there was a lot of there were a lot of different things going on in early monasticism. And if you only read the things like the Apophthegmata or Cassian, you get this idea that, oh, we all in the desert do this. But it clearly was not the case. Um, and it's a lot messier than it looks like. I, I believe that. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I have a question about what Cassian might have thought about uh, typical or normal Christians in sort of the urban setting under the institutional church who, you know, paid uh, the necessary uh, fealty to the bishop and so on. That, you know, basically were happy living in their parish being uh, urban dwellers. Uh, you say, for example, that Cassian implicitly sets up a duality between Egyptian monasticism as the highest practice of Christianity and church hierarchs uh, as examples of inferior representatives of a spirituality and aesthetically deficient, albeit necessary, institution. So it seems that he and other monastics are not exactly looking down upon clergy and, tra and traditional urban church membership, but at the same time, these are denigrated perhaps silently as being imperfect forms if they are the perfect form of Christian piety, right, by comparison to Cassian's ideals. So uh, well, what does Cassian think about uh, typical Christians in, um, in the fifth century? So the, the easy answer is he, he, he almost doesn't mention them at all. Mm -hmm. However, um, based on what he does talk about, I would say that he, well, so first of all, when it comes to church hierarchs, when it comes to bishops and other clergy, we're pretty clear that he he seems to generally conceive of them as necessary, but not as not as good of Christians as he and his fellow monks. Um, unless they prioritize asceticism. And again, in a lot of the writings, you have bishops who prioritize asceticism. They're okay. Chrysostom is okay. Um, you have lay people who wear hair shirts while they do their manual work and uh, give half of their money to the poor, even though they need it. Those guys are okay. So it, it has much more to do with much less to do with a title like bishop or monk than it or layperson than it does with are you ascetic are you committed to ascetic virtue yeah and so um i would say that well and that's why for example he cites figures who were not officially monks like elijah and john the baptist as monastic progenitors he can he's comfortable saying that because they were sufficiently ascetic um he definitely never denigrates clergy directly he never says all bishops suck or you know <laughs> That, that would probably be a burn at the stake or something. Um, however, and, and he certainly, you know, for example, he, he does prefer to take communion or, or the Eucharist from the hands of a clergy person. Um, although it, I do point out in the book, some people have said that monks could give each other, if they were sufficiently uh, isolated from a church, they could give each other the Eucharist. That was fine. But he, he does think that that's a necessary form of the church. And he thinks that the church in general is necessary, especially for lay people. So he definitely would not say, get rid of the church or get rid of bishops. Mm -hmm. um, he just thinks that Egyptian monasticism does it better. Um, they are the best Christians. And in that case, I, I would say that any aspersions cast upon the church are sort of more implied than explicit. He does, at one point, denigrate Jerome and Basil of Caesarea um, saying that they are certainly great writers, uh, but they don't know ascetic practice from experience like he does, but rather from hearsay. This is obviously false. Those two were extremely ascetic. Um, however, I have to think that since Basil was a bishop and Jerome worked for the Bishop of Rome, that this is a subtle dig at the, at the clergy. 
saying like, okay, they're ascetics in scare quotes. Um, it's pretty subtle, but I think again, he's, he's, he's not denying the necessity of clergy. Um, and certainly not of, of lay people who are good Christians in the church. He's just saying monks are the ultimate ideal. And perhaps it's better to let monks write about monks and talk about our traditions ourselves internally rather than, you know, the people who just kind of like peer in and look at 100%. So uh, my last question for you, Josh, uh, relates to kind of the effectiveness of Cassie and his program. So he, he envisions and attempts to construct this ideal monasticism uh, as he, uh, you know, settles in uh, the Christian West, as you have described, a superior way of uh, practicing, you know, monasticism than what that he found existing there already. But he also, if you are correct, and I, I think you're on the right track at least, uh, wanted to uh, set up his um, uh, monastic order as somewhat distinct from the institutional church and the clergy. So I'm wondering if you'll reflect for us on how and to what degree Cassing was ultimately successful in his aims. Uh, do you see the monastic orders having been kind of co-opted by the church uh, for the most part, or were his reformist and uh, divisional intentions realized, even if for a brief period? On and uh, do you still see any reverberations of his program in surviving relations between the church and the monastery? So the first answer is he absolutely failed to set up any sort of separation. Um, they were eventually totally co-opted, which is, I think, predictable. Sure. Um, no one thinks of monasteries or monks as separate from the church. And that includes in both the Catholic tradition and in all the Orthodox traditions. Um, yeah, I, I have actually spoken to modern monks a few times and mentioned this sort of attempted separation that I think was going on, and they all seemed kind of horrified, um, which makes sense when thinking back on it, because for them, their entire lives, it has been an integral part of the church. So um, in that sense, Cassian failed miserably. However, um, a lot of the specific and practical suggestions he had have been institu were instituted not long after him and sort of worldwide in, in Western-type monasteries, um, certainly across Western Europe. So, for example, Benedict Nursia's rule, which is still used in monasteries all over the West, um, still used, basically used Cassian as one of his main sources. So that's a huge victory. With attribution or without? Uh, with. And in, and in fact, so like Cassian, um, Cassian advocated for this, but didn't make as big of a deal of it. In, in Benedict's rule, during mealtimes, one person is supposed to read to the group and, and nobody's supposed to speak. Scripture is obviously preferable, but one of the, one of the two things he says can be read in addition are Cassian's writings. So um, that's a big deal. And, and, it, and it continues to this day. I had to check at a, another monastery, like, are Cassian's writings still read? Yes. So, I mean, that's a huge, you know, centuries-long influence. And obviously they were preserved for a reason. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Um, so on, a, on the one hand, with his focus on asceticism, I think he would have been a little disappointed by monks, you know, driving cars and watching TV today and things like that. But um, you have to say that a lot of the traditions he transmitted um, were spread all over the world and become standard in monasteries. Uh, the schedule of prayers he wrote still goes on in monasteries. There are modifications, obviously, but for both Catholics and Orthodox monastics this is still it's he's still the basis mm -hmm. well uh josh it's been um a pleasure to speak with you today I, this has been a, a, a nice uh, endeavor to go on with you to revisit uh your work from uh your dissertation that has now been turned into a book 
So I'm interested to see where other scholars go with uh, your take on Cassian and you know your ideas about the positionality of monasticism to the ecclesiastics once it gets consumed by sort of a wider basis. Uh, what are you working on next? Where is your work heading next? And where will we uh, see you next? Well, I'm working a lot more on Jewish Christianity right now and, and um, scholarship on the Didache, sort of reconceptualizing that as possibly somewhat formative to early monasticism. Mm, so okay. we'll see. Very interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for your work on monasticism, and for being our guest on the New Books Network. Thank you. Again, Dr. Shackley's book is John Casting and the Creation of Monastic Subjectivity, and it's available now from Equinox Books. I've been Rob Heaton, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for New Books and Biblical Studies, and I'll be with you again on your next download. But in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thank you. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.